super excited this morning to uh, begin a new sermon series with you all entitled Numbers. Our lives are filled and inundated with numbers, are they not? That video powerfully kind of depicts all the numbers that we see in our life. There are telephone numbers, license plate numbers, uh, social security numbers, credit card numbers, bank account numbers, Powerball numbers, student ID numbers, medical record numbers, just to name a few. Numbers are everywhere. Uh, from your age, a number that most women don't like to share, to your GPA, a number that most teens don't like to share. Uh, there are your checking account numbers, hopefully a number that's not in the red, to the percentage of power left on your phone or computer, which always seems to go red at the worst time. Numbers are everywhere. If you think about it, your health is more or less based on numbers, is it not? Weight, blood pressure, calories, cholesterol, body fat percentage, cancer cells, it's all about the numbers. Your team's success or failure really boils down to the numbers. Wins, losses, championships, a salary cap room, draft picks, seedings in the playoffs, it's all about the numbers. Even this church and our mission and our goals for the future revolves heavily around the numbers, attendance, giving, visitors, conversions, missions. It all goes back to the numbers. See, so whether it's high or low, uh, small or large, massive or minuscule numbers, they dictate and determine so many things in our life. And they also kind of shape how we feel about certain things in life. Let me give you an example. I remember the frustration, in fact, the devastation on my seven-year-old's face when she learned she could not ride Splash Mountain at Disneyland because she was not 48 inches tall. 48 became a number that we could not say out loud in the Fitzpatrick household uh, for several years after that. It was an evil, evil number. But so many things in our life revolve around numbers. How many years have you been married? How big was the baby? How much are they going to pay you? How many months until retirement? Numbers, numbers, numbers. Life is full of numbers, and so is the Bible. In fact, there's actually an entire book in the Bible called the Book of Numbers. It's a book in the Old Testament, and it deals with how many family members in each tribe made it into the desert and then into the promised land. And it kind of reads more like a math textbook than God's inspiring word. But once you get past the first few chapters, it's an incredible read. It's an incredible book. But those are not the numbers that we had in mind for this series. Don't worry. Many of you said, wow, the book of numbers this summer, huh? Interesting choice. No, the series is called Numbers Hashtag, but not numbers. Okay, and that's what we mean by that. In addition to the book of numbers, there are also very significant and important key numbers that you read about and, and find throughout the pages of Scripture. This is called biblical numerology, right? And there's numbers like 3, 40, 7, 12. These numbers are used hundreds of times from the beginning of end to communicate completion, fullness, perfection, authority. But those aren't the numbers that we had in mind for the series either. Again, hashtag, but not the numbers. The numbers that we want to spend some time talking about the rest of this summer are the little numbers in the Bible that you see in front of each sentence and at the top of each page. These numbers are called chapters and verses. Now, I know this doesn't sound like a, a, an incredibly exciting summer series, but, but let me explain to you the history behind these numbers. When the books of the Bible were first written, they were all written as letters or stories, so there were no breaks in them. There were no numbers, if you will. There were no chapters and verses. They were intended to be read from beginning to end, straight through, no breaks. 
But when you put all of those different letters together and you create the Bible, you've got a pretty large book, do you not? This contains now 66 books. You've got 35,000 sentences, 800,000 words. And it's hard to keep track of all those things, and it's hard to get everybody on the same page, literally. I mean, imagine how it would sound trying to study the Bible if it were numberless. Uh, Turn to a page about halfway through the book, third paragraph from the bottom, fifth sentence in, two words after the word, therefore. See the problem? We'd all be on a very different page, and that would be a problem. And so over the years, several different individuals added the chapters and the verses. Several different individuals added the numbers to make it a little bit more user-friendly, to make it easier to study, more convenient to read. A man by the name of Stephen Langton divided the Bible into chapters in the year 1227. Then Robert Stevens, a French printer, divided the Bible into verses in 1551. These are the two individuals who kind of get the credit for the numbers, if you will. So you could say that these little numbers, right, the chapters, the verses, all those little numbers found throughout the Bible, you could say they don't have any great meaning. You could say there's nothing really all that godly about those numbers, that that it didn't have any great authority or deep religious significance. But God has used those numbers, has he not, since their creation to do incredible things. The words, the truth, the promises of God are now inextricably connected to certain numbers. And those numbers are how we recall God's promises to us. Those numbers are how we remember God's truth to us. I have to think God likes it that way. I have to think he planned it that way. If you want to know what God's heart is, what God's hope is, it's all about the numbers. The numbers 316. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life That great promise about life now and forever revolves around the numbers, does it not? The numbers 316. When things aren't going too well for you, you're going through a difficult time, when you start to lose hope, it's all about the numbers. Numbers 2911, Jeremiah 2911. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. 2911 are numbers that can change your life. If you wonder if you have what it takes to overcome or to get through whatever difficult situation you're going through, it all goes back to the numbers. The numbers 4.13. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things. Difficult things, easy things, demanding things, selfless things. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 316, 29-11, 4-13. Out of all the numbers that your life is filled with, I want those numbers to be the most important. I want those numbers to be the one that you remember and recall instantly. I want those numbers to bring you life because they are the only numbers that can. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the key numbers in all the scripture. Just ask some friends, and I get to just kind of pick my favorite verses in all the scripture and just look in depth at those numbers and the truth and the power and the life and the love that is behind each and every one of them. And my hope for you over the course of the summer is that these numbers will become more important to you, more meaningful to you. You will remember them more so than your own social security number or your anniversary date, which for some of you is not saying a whole lot. But I want these numbers to be numbers that stick. And so I thought, what better place to start than at the very beginning? 
I mean, it makes sense that we start a series on numbers with the first numbers in the entire Bible. So your numbers today, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. The numbers one, one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to have a little fun this morning, kind of go back to my college pastor days. And uh, this might sound more like a, a, a Bible lecture or an apologetic study, but hang with me because this is important stuff and I want you to get it. Because the numbers 1-1 one, one have the power to change everything. When God first reveals himself to us in the Bible, when he says, I want you to know more about me, so I'm going to write an autobiography. I'm going to write a story telling you all about who I am. He doesn't start it off in ways you might expect. He doesn't say, oh, please, oh, please, believe in me. Oh, please, oh, please, believe in all the things I'm about to tell you. God doesn't start his story by saying, um, excuse me, could you please pay attention to me for a few seconds here? He doesn't start the story off with, dear humanity, I have an interesting proposition for you. Dear humanity, I would like for you to consider the following or entertain the following theory. He doesn't say any of that. The Bible doesn't begin with some argument with a matching PowerPoint to prove God's existence. The numbers 1-1 are not a defense of God's existence. The numbers 1-1 are a declaration that God exists. There's no apology here. There's no gray area. There's no caveats. God comes right out and says it. He is the one behind all you can see in this world and all you cannot see. The heavens and the earth are not the result of some cosmic accident or some giant rocks accidentally colliding together. Our lives are not based on luck or chance or mutating cells. It's all because of God. That's 1-1. One, one. Why is there a world versus none at all? One, one, God. Who was there at the beginning of time organizing and orchestrating all things? One, one, God. Why on earth am I on the earth? One, one, God. You see, every great painting is the work of a great painter. Every great Sculpture is formed by a gifted sculptor. Every great building is, is constructed by a trained builder. Every intricate design comes from the mind of an expert designer. And what's true of everything in this room, this, this plastic pulpit, this purple carpet, the, the projectors, right? They were all made by someone to do something that is also true for you. It's actually true for the entire universe. The great God of the universe is the starting point, the source of it all, from the cosmos to your chair to your friend Chris. He's the starting point of it all. One, one. Aren't those great numbers? One, one. Before anything existed, God was there. And he purposed, he proclaimed, he put forth all that exists. Look at Psalm 14.1. It goes as far to say this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a pretty aggressive statement, don't you think? That's pretty emphatic. It seems a little harsh, like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't label everybody out there as fools and don't believe in God. But the psalmist can say this. In fact, the psalmist does say this because of 1-1. One, 1-1 one. One, one gives him the right and the backing to say, there is a God, and it should be clear and obvious and unmistakable to everyone. And yet, there are lots of people who would disagree. 
Are there not? There are lots of fake folks who would actually say the exact opposite of that. They would say, the fool is the one who believes in God. The fool is the one who turns off their brain to believe some far-fetched fantasy that behind all that we see is some unseen being. The fool is the person of faith. Have you heard that before? Maybe felt that before? Someone whispered that to you or maybe even screamed it at you. The fool is the person of faith. The fool is the person who believes in God. From pop culture to professors at state universities to our so-called scientific experts, a lot of people think it's foolish to believe in God, to believe in one-one. But is it? Is it foolish, church? Are you an idiot for believing one-one? Have you turned off your brain to believe one-one? I mean, do we base everything on one-one? That's just what we're supposed to do as as good little Bible-believing Christians. Do you, do you base your worldview and your understanding of why the world is the way that it is or where the world came from? Do you base all of that on some fanciful ideas, some sort of childish dream that you have? Or are those numbers one, one? Are they an explanation for why everything is the way that it is? Are those numbers the way, the tool, the ability that you have been given to now explain things that other people cannot explain. Let me give you some examples. In that one little statement, in those numbers, one, one, God says that there are so many things that that are the way they are because of him. And if you don't believe in one, one, then you really don't have any other way to explain those things. The first example is the fine-tuning of the universe. By fine-tuning, I'm talking about the precision in which our universe exists, the razor's edge on which all of life continues. See, there are constant or countless constants, if you will, that have to be just perfect for us to keep living and to keep breathing each and every day. And if one of those numbers changes in just the slightest, you're dead. I'm dead. We're done. You want numbers? I got some numbers for you. Here we go. If the expansion of the universe differed in strength by as little as one part to 10 to the 60th power, not even sure how big that number is, but it's probably the biggest number I've ever seen then the universe would either collapse back on itself or it would expand too much, too fast, too far. We'd all be dead. You with me? Okay, you're not. Okay, hold on. Here we go. Calculations indicate if the force that binds protons and neutrons together inside the atom, if that were stronger or weaker by 0.5%, you'd be dead. Okay, here we go. Calculations show if gravity were stronger or weaker by one part in one to the tenth to the fortieth power, not even sure I even say that word, then life-sustaining stars could not exist. Then either you would be sucked down onto the planet and you wouldn't exist, or you'd float off into space and you wouldn't exist. Either way, you'd be dead, right? If the neutron were not exactly 1.0001, exactly the times the mass of the proton, then all protons would have decayed into neutrons, or all neutrons would have decayed into protons. Not sure what that means, but it means you're dead. It doesn't work, okay? Now I got a hundred more of these examples, so just hang on. You got nowhere to go today, right? Let's just keep talking about this. But hopefully you're seeing a trend here. From the perfect tilt of the earth to the distance of the sun to the earth to the fact that we need the moon to stabilize the earth, there are so many things that make it so you can stay alive on the earth. And we take all of that stuff into account, hundreds and hundreds of these examples, 
that not one thing can change by a single degree, or it's all for naught, when you take all of that into account, doesn't it just look like, doesn't it just feel like someone made it? Doesn't it look like and feel like, like someone masterfully, perfectly, and purposefully designed it? I mean, why would there be so much order? Why would there be so much precision? Why would there be so much perfection in a universe controlled by randomness? Why would randomness and luck and chance produce so much perfection? No, it can't. It's impossible. Now, could it be that the universe just accidentally fell into place, like so many people believe? That all these perfect conditions and perfect parameters just kind of happened? Could all this be the result of luck and chance and billions and billions of years? Yes, there is a chance that could happen. But you have a better chance of shooting a bullet at a target in a different galaxy and hitting the bullseye. Seriously, you have a better chance of doing that. So, so go ahead, take your, take your chance. You have a better chance of a box of alphabet cereal falling off your kitchen table and spelling out West Bowles Community Church and Pastor Thomas freaking rock. <laughs> Excuse my language, alphabets. Jeez. Could it happen? Yeah, and is it true? Uh-huh. But, I mean, come on. You have a better chance... If, if I filled the entire world up with dimes two feet deep, you have a better chance of finding the one dime I marked with a black X. You have a better chance of doing all those things than of the universe just magically, mysteriously, accidentally happening. Now call me crazy. If something looks like a cat, smells like a cat, meows like a cat, acts annoying like a cat then I'm going to call it a cat. If the universe looks like it's designed, if it acts like it's designed, if it operates as if it's designed, then I'm going to say it was designed. I'm going to say it was designed by God. One, one. I love this. Psalm 115, 15. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So if you don't believe in 1-1, one, one, if those numbers aren't true for you, then you need to come up with another explanation for why the universe is so perfectly calibrated. The burden of proof is no longer on me. I've given you a good answer. I've given you a good explanation. It now lies on you to give me a better explanation, and I have yet to find one. Because 1-1 one, one is as good as it gets. Secondly, if the numbers 1-1 aren't true, then how do you make sense of morality? In 1992, a notorious and rather successful robber named Dennis Lee Curtis, here's not a very good picture of him, but I'm not sure there would be, uh, he was finally arrested in South Dakota. He had caused havoc and chaos for years. But when he was finally arrested, the police found something very interesting in his wallet. It was a piece of paper entitled, My Rules of Robbery. And it had the following things written on it. I will only rob seven months out of the year. I will only rob mini marts or 7-Eleven stores. I will only take cash, no food stamps or checks. I will only rob at night. I will not wear a mask, and I will not kill someone unless I have to. I mean, what a considerate thief. <laughs> Time off, right? A mask, only 7-Eleven store. I mean, what a nice guy. But don't you think it's rather odd what he considers good or bad, right or wrong. 
It's like, you would do all of this, but you wouldn't do this? Why? Why not? Because without God, people can make up whatever they want to be good and bad, right and wrong. Author and scholar William Lane Craig said it best. Are the values that we hold dear, our understanding of right and wrong, the rules and laws that govern our lives, are they just social conventions, like driving on the right side of the road versus the left? Are they merely expressions of personal preference, like having a taste for vanilla ice cream versus chocolate? Or are our morals, the things we believe to be good and right, are those things valid and binding regardless of what we think about them? And if so, why? Where do they come from and what is their foundation? What William Lane Craig is saying here is that human beings throughout all of time and in every civilization have believed that certain things are wrong or evil. Murder, rape, stealing, incest, child abuse. Those actions, uh, 99% of the world's population believe those are things you should not do. And the 1% of civilizations that do believe those things are okay, what do we call them? Barbaric, uncivilized, right? We label them as being in the wrong and out of whack with the rest of us. But why? Why does all of humanity have this deep-seated feeling that certain things are just wrong? Certain things are just bad. Why? Why is that? Why do we all feel this deep sense of morality within us? Where does that come from? Was there some huge conference that I'm not aware of where all world leaders came together and said, okay, uh, rape, vote if you think it's wrong. wrong. Okay, rape passes. Murder, mm, okay, good. Uh, stealing, okay, good. Illegally downloading iTunes songs. Hmm, no. Interesting. Okay, we'll put that on the table. Right? Was there a convention where people decided on what was right and wrong? No. There's no such convention. Another way to phrase it is this. Let's say that the, the world is represented by a magic eight ball. You remember those things? Kind of like, am I going to have fun this weekend? Chances don't look so good. <clears throat> remember those magic eight balls? Imagine if the world were a magic eight ball, Okay. And right now it says rape, murder, incest, child abuse, sex trafficking, all those are evil things. If we re-shook the world up, would it, would it be opposite the next time the world was created? Oh, look, this time all those things are good. Jeez, what did we know? You think that's how it would happen? Not at all. What is the basis of our morality? What is the basis of our values? What is the basis of our law? If it's all an accident... If this world is just survival of the fittest, then I can honestly slap you in the face right now, steal your wallet, kiss your wife, go rob your house, and you couldn't stop me. It might be wrong to you, but it's not wrong to me. See, I got my own list of robbery rules. Now, it would be against the law, Thomas. Well, the law, the law was just made by other people. So what gives them the right above me to say what's right and wrong? It's just lawmakers, politicians that said that and made it in the law. No, 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 I have every right to do whatever I want to do. But 1-1 tells us there's so much more going on. But do you see the problem? If morals and values are just relative and up to us, then there's going to be chaos for all of us. But 1-1 says that morality is rooted and grounded in God. 
Look at 1 Samuel 2.3. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him all deeds are weighed. He's the standard. He's the source. He's the starting point. Right and wrong, good and evil are based on God. What he's like. What he deems to be important and good. Something is wrong or evil because it's not of God. It goes against God. And that becomes then our definition, our standard for all things good and evil. It's not up to us. It's not up to the robber in South Dakota. But if you take God out of the equation, if you take God out of the picture, then you are left with nothing more than just like an animal kingdom where we can kill each other however we want. There's no moral obligation that we have. There's no reason to follow law. Without God, there is no standard, no source, no starting point, and there is no way you can explain morality. Why do random creatures who were accidentally mutated over billions and billions of years, why do they care so much about right and wrong? Because according to your theory that it's all luck and it's all chance and it's all chaos, they shouldn't give a damn about anything because all they are is mass and proteins and molecules and rocks. And the last time I checked, none of those things care at all about morality. You with me? Without God, you have no right and no standing for morality. Again, 1-1, though, gives us the right, gives us the ability, gives us the tools and the knowledge to say, this is why there is morality and values and law. 1-1. One, one. All right, finally, without 1-1, one, one, you cannot make sense out of suffering. Now, this might sound strange to you because one of the strongest arguments against the existence of God is what? The argument of suffering. And it makes sense. When you consider the depth of the suffering in our world, from natural disasters to genocides to wars to terrorist bombings to mass shootings, you have to admit it's hard to believe in a good God in this world, is it not? But think about it, the sheer fact that people call those things evil or bad or unfair or unjust, what does that do? It speaks to God's existence. It again speaks to some deeper meaning, some higher calling. See, when rocks collide with each other, we're not like, suffering, those rocks are suffering. When cells mutate in some Petri dish, we're not like, oh, the suffering. When animals just devour each other, we watch it on YouTube like again and again and again, like you see the one with the hippos and the lion, like, woo We're not like, this is mindless suffering. We use that word for us. Because matter mutating, it isn't good or bad. It doesn't give a darn about but what happens to you. Without God, you can't claim that's unjust or unfair. It just is what it is. It's just rocks colliding. It's just cells mutating. It's just animals eating each other. It's kind of what, what, what happens in this world. Like just the way that it is. Let's go one step deeper now into this suffering idea. Without God, all you can say to the woman who is raped or to the parents who bury their children or to the families of those men and women who died a few weeks ago in Orlando, all you can say to them is something like this. Well, just how it happens. It's just the way the chips fell. It's just the straw that you drew. You were in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
Because there is no deeper meaning or significance to anything in this world. So there's no deeper meaning or significance to your suffering in the world. You with me? Without God, you cannot speak hope. You cannot speak promise. You cannot speak peace to anyone who is suffering. All you can say is, this is random and pointless and meaningless. Hope that helps. Oh, but with God, church, with one, one, you can say and you should say so much more. Because of one, one, you can say that pain is not meaningless. Pain is not pointless. Pain is not irreversible or irredeemable. Sure, it's hard to see how a good God and a broken world can coexist. But that's your only option. That's your only good option. God allows suffering. God sees suffering. God uses suffering. But more than that, God feels and has experienced suffering because he went to the cross. Suffering is not just some random, hypothetical, theoretical understanding or idea for God. It's something he experienced on his very shoulders. And because of that, because he took on that suffering, he now shows us that all suffering can be used for good. He now shows us that all suffering can be twisted on its head to be used to bless those who are actually suffering. Without one, one, your pain, that's the entirety of your story and probably the end of your story. But with one, one, your pain is simply a moment in time in a much larger story. Without one, one, your pain is pointless. But with one, one, your pain serves a great purpose, an eternal purpose, that you might share in his sufferings, conform more like him in his death, and know Jesus Christ. Without one, one, you have no hope. Without one, one, you just live in a bubble with paranoia and fear on the outside and on the inside. But with one, one, you can stand tall. With one, one, you can keep going. Because of one, one, we understand why there is suffering and pain and loss and heartache. And there is a good God who will redeem and resurrect all broken, lost, and dead things. Amen? So there are lots of numbers in this world. And I forget most of the important ones in my life, to be honest with you. But I hope and pray that the numbers one one, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I pray those become some of the most important numbers in your entire life. Because those numbers not only explain life, those numbers can actually fill you up with life. If you have never really embraced this truth before, that God is the one behind all that there is, God is the one behind the perfect universe in which we live. God is the one behind the moral values that you feel, the right and wrong that you feel, that God is the one behind your suffering, ultimately. If you've never embraced it, I want you to find me right after your service. I want to pray with you and just say, God, we admit and we proclaim and we say with great delight, one, one, in the beginning, you were there. Before I was, you were. Before I understood, you did. Before I was able to make sense of anything, you were. You with me? One, one. What a great, what a great set of numbers. Let me pray those over you. We'll get out of here. Father, thank you for the way in which you began your story. Thank you for the power behind one, one. Thank you for telling us why this world is here to begin with, but also why it is the way that it is. Thank you for making sense of the universe and morality and our suffering, God. 
Only you can do that. There is no other theory, no other idea, no other textbook out there that can perfectly make sense of these three things. You are the answer that we seek. You are the answer that we should give to others. Help us to be excited, to be um, energized, to be bold in sharing the power and the truth and the life found in the numbers one, one. We love you. Bless us this weekend. Keep us safe. Help us to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much again for being here today, taking some time out of your weekend. Have a great day. Don't forget your dollar in the bin on the way out. We'll see you next week.